time for this week's question show. Your questions, my answers, as always, wherever you are on the YouTube channel, if some idea or question pops into your mind, just type it in, whether it's on the general channel, on a video, whether it's about what the video's about or whether it's not, doesn't matter, I see them all, I see everything. I want to remind you that uh, we're doing these videos in 4K. Now, obviously, for the question show, where you're just like staring at my face in great detail, it's not as useful, but for the, for the regular Guide to Space videos, all those animations, we, all the pictures, we try to make as much of it in 4K. So if you've got like a big 4K TV, which I don't have, uh, you should totally watch them in 4K. It's awesome. All right, let's get on with the first question. Andrea Pisani. Hi, Fraser. I'm a Patreon. Can you explain to me why everybody says that the Kilonova explosion is so important to understand how heavier elements form? I thought the supernova can produce elements like gold. Maybe quantity matters? First, Andrea, thank you for being a patron. That's why your question goes at the top. Now, we've got an episode coming out really quickly about the whole discovery, but again, use the word patron, and so I just had to jump that right up to the top of the queue. Here's the thing that's important about this discovery, right? These two neutron stars collided and astronomers were able to see gold and platinum in the wreckage coming out of this explosion. Astronomers thought that maybe, probably, gold was formed in supernovae, but they couldn't kind of make the physics and the math and the models duplicate and explain what we saw. And so it was really, it was like supernovae were the way that they thought that maybe gold was formed, but it, it just wasn't good enough. And so the other idea was that maybe when neutron stars collided, that would do the trick. And so with this Kilonova explosion, they actually saw the cloud of gold confirming that theory, which blows your mind when you think about the fact that all of this gold all around us, all of the platinum, all of the and these heavier elements were formed from two neutron stars smashing into each other that were caused by two supernova explosions. And these things whirled around each other for billions of years and then seeded the solar nebula with material. It's, it's amazing and it's an incredible discovery. Definitely the big discovery of the year so far and can't wait to sort of see what happens next. Mr. Doctor. Hey baby, I hear the blues a calling. Toss salad and scrambled eggs. I see what you're doing there. Uh, Fraser Crane. My name is Fraser Kane. Uh, congratulations, you're the first person who's ever noticed that. Um, no, obviously I, I've known since the first time that guy, Kelsey Grammer's character, showed up on Cheers and he took my name. I had the name first. I was born in 1971. There was no Cheers. There was no idea of Cheers in 1971 when my parents gave me my perfectly fine Scottish name. So, so, and Kelsey, I would like it back, please. Larry588. Would a location right at the edge of even outside of the solar system be an even better location for a space telescope and such? Now, I know what you're thinking with that question, or I think I know what you're thinking with that question, which is like, boy, wouldn't it be cool if you put a space telescope out inside the solar system where it was like really far away from the glare of the sun and jostled by it and would have a really nice dark view of the night sky? Eh, it wouldn't be that much better. But, man, that is, there is something really cool for why you should put a telescope out at sort of at the very edge of the solar system. When you get to 550 
astronomical units away from the sun, so 550 times the distance of the Earth to the sun, the sun itself acts like a gravitational lens that distorts the light from directly behind it. And so if you put a telescope at that distance, it would use the sun as a lens. Now the problem is that the sun is also right there where the lens is and it's super bright. So you actually have to go farther away. You probably have to go to about a thousand astronomical units or 2000. And if you can get that far away, you'll get the sun and you'll get this Einstein ring around the sun, this distortion of light. And you could see objects with a powerful telescope. You could, you would only have to be looking that distance away and you'd be looking at this distorted light around the sun and you would sort of rebuild it into a picture. And the capability of that is that you could see objects on extrasolar planets 30 light years away the size of a kilometer, which is, is mind-bending. You could see features and structures and mountains and rivers and oceans 30 light years away. So there is a really terrific reason why we should get a telescope out that far. And there's this idea in the works, it's called the focal mission, but the problem is getting a telescope 2,000 astronomical units away from the sun. That's hard, that's far, and would require some engineering that we just haven't really worked out yet, but it would be the best place to put a telescope. Crazy Squirrel. Brown dwarfs fuse deuterium, right? So can brown dwarfs turn into white dwarfs after they've fused all of their deuterium? No. A, like a white dwarf is the core of a star like our sun that has gone through the full main sequence stage of its life. So it starts out, you know, fusing hydrogen into helium at its core, puffs up as a red giant, reaches the end of its life, and then uh, the runs out of hydrogen in the core, turn, you know, starts cooking helium, runs out of helium, turns, starts creating carbon, and then that's as far as a star like our sun can go, and so then you, it cools down and you've got this ball of carbon, you know, the, the, the universe's biggest diamond. And then that will cool down and that will turn from a white dwarf, which is very hot, into what's called a black dwarf. And that'll take trillions, quadrillions of years for it to finally cool down, eventually become the background temperature of the universe. While a brown dwarf, right, is a, is a failed star, it's a star that's not big enough to actually be able to get fusion of regular hydrogen in its core, only deuterium. So it does deuterium for a little while, but then it can't go any further than that. So then it just runs out of usable deuterium, cools down, and just dies and then will cool down to the background temperature of the universe in as a ball of hydrogen and like a big planet really like a big like Jupiter when it when Jupiter finally stopped you know the compression temperature in its core when everything just cooled down it would just be a ball of cold hydrogen and that's what brown dwarfs will become that's what the earth will become but made of rock but cold Martin Schumann what happens if the black hole at the center of our galaxy disappeared? Will everything be the same as it is right now, or will we fly away in a straight line till another galaxy catches us? The black hole, the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way is about 4.1 million times the mass of the sun. Sounds like a lot, but actually it's less than 1%. It's a fraction of the total mass of the Milky Way. And the thing that's actually holding the Milky Way together is the mutual mass of all of the stars and dust and 
planets, but also this huge halo of dark matter that surrounds the Milky Way and acts like an anchor. So if someone came and just like disappeared the supermassive black hole at the middle, you would have a bunch of these stars that are orbiting around the black hole, kind of like comets actually. They would lose their gravitational center. There might be some other stars that are kind of jostling around a little, but for us, wouldn't even feel it and so it would have almost no real impact on the stability and structure of the Milky Way. It's not like that black hole is the anchor of everything and if you lose it, everything flies away. The GOAT. Hi Fraser, just wanted to point out that a docking ring would be stationary. Once the shuttle is docked to the ring, the ring would then slowly start turning to match the rotation of the station. Just saying. Alright, so this is based on last week's question show where someone wanted to know how a spaceship would dock with a rotating space station. I clearly need to do an episode of rotating space stations, like that's, that is in the queue. And I think you're right, that you would have, you know, some kind of space station that's rotating and then maybe it's got a docking ring that's attached to the end of it and the space station can make that docking ring stop compared to the rest of the rotation. You got this docking ring that's there, and then the spaceship comes up and docks to the side of this docking ring, and then, you know, the, the brakes are, are removed or applied, and the ring starts to rotate with the rest of the space station, and then you've got this spaceship that's going around and around, and then the astronauts get out of there, and they start to feel the gravity, all the, the people on the spaceship, and then they, they go out their door and now they're on the space station. So that sounds like a pretty good way to do it unless your docking ring breaks and the mechanism, because you know, when you think about it, it's like this great big wheel and this other wheel and something's got to slow it down and stop it from turning. Like it's a lot of pieces involved. So no matter what happens, there's gonna need to be some way to get people from, from a spaceship that is gonna be docking with a rotating space station. They have to match the rotation of the space station. And the best way to do that, I'm sure, hasn't been completely figured out. People, you know, I wish we got to a place where people are trying to engineer the best kind of way to dock spaceships with rotating space stations. That would be, that would be an awesome problem to have. Ernie Simpson. What about mining the far side of the moon to preserve our view of it? I, I love this. I got this response a bunch of times. This is sort of like, I gave you the ethical question, should we, dismantle the moon? Is it ethical for us to wreck this thing, even if it's dead so that it doesn't, so that it's gone or that it doesn't look, we disfigure it for our own purposes. We mine it, we, we chisel away at it. And I got this response from a bunch of people, which is, you know, the moon is tidally locked to the earth. It's only showing one face. So let's just, let's just put all that heavy industry on the, on the far side of the moon, the side that we can't see. So we look up in the sky, we see the beautiful moon like we always did, and then we know that the back side of the moon is just being dismantled and torn apart, which I think is, which I think is funny. I think it's a, it's a great solution. It would make it so we wouldn't have to see, you know, the moon being taken apart, but it would be still happening. So anyway, I, I, I like that. Got the response a bunch of times and I, I kind of like the idea. Snow toad, is time infinite? Whoa, it's a good question. Which direction do you wanna go? So if we wanna go back to the beginning of the universe, 13.8 billion years ago, it appears that time is, has a finite beginning, that, that the universe and time and space time and all this stuff started 
with the Big Bang. So that, so you can imagine sort of like on the one side, you've got this boundary and that, that there was, that time began. But if you go the other way, if you go forward into the future, right now, from what we can tell, the universe is going to be expanding and expanding and expanding forever. And so time will go on forever in the, you know, into the future. There's no reason to say that time would come to an end. So you can imagine it's a, uh, it's a line with a, you know, one point at the beginning and then it just goes on forever. Now there's a couple of things. There's one idea which is called eternal inflation. I've got a special guest coming and we're going to talk all about it, how, how there could be sort of other uniform, uh, sorry, other universes popping up within this universe and it's going on all the time. So, so this concept of time in any one place in the universe actually doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, that's coming. Uh, the other idea is this idea that the sort of, and this is, this is way out there, but that quantum mechanics, you know, quantum mechanics says that you know, that everything around us, all the particles, all the parts of our body, et cetera, they're sort of, it's a prob probabilistic function that says that, that I'm going to be here, that all the air around me is going to happen to be here. And it could, it could, through quantum mechanics, be sort of teleported somewhere across the universe. And so there's this other idea, which is that, that quantum mechanics says that particles are, are actually wave functions and that the sort of the position of where a particle is, is a probabilistic situation. And that if you wait long enough, like billions, trillions, quadrillions, like a long, 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 long time, particles can sort of appear in different locations. And if you go long enough, that more complex objects will literally form pop into the universe because of the probability that, you know, that the, that the universe will rearrange little chunks of itself. And in fact, if you wait long enough, and like it's a ludicrous amount of time, the, the probability is that you will get an entirely new Big Bang, that the, that the matter in the universe will rearrange itself into a new singularity and you'll get a new Big Bang. Assuming the universe is finite. If the universe is infinite, then all, then all bets are off. So then time would begin again. So that's sort of the weird thinking that's out there right now. But like I said, we've got an interesting question, uh, episode on eternal inflation coming and uh, we'll go into more detail on that later. Markle 2K. Is an L4-L5 stability a double-edged sword? There should be a lot of crap that got stuck there for a while. That might cause a hazard for a telescope. Yes and no. You are going to have objects in the L4, L5 Lagrange points. These are the stable Lagrange points. And, you know, asteroids, debris, rocks, comets, little stuff. You know, they call them Trojans that are, you know, that are located around Jupiter. And there's probably similar Trojan objects that are located around the Earth. And so if you put a telescope out there, it's going to be kind of jostled around by all these objects. So you would need to go and map out the density of a Trojan system. And, and actually NASA is working on a mission that may go and explore the Trojan asteroids of Jupiter. And so send a mission out to, to this area and just kind of sit in the middle of the Trojan area and then just observe as exactly that, as objects kind of jostle around and bring themselves close to your telescope. We don't know. Again, we don't know what 
dangers it will face until we go and we, we actually do it. If we actually build like a human colony there, we're probably gonna want to deal with the other objects that are located in this L4, L5 point, but that's like a problem for a type one civilization to have. James Brownlee, would the best way to explore Mars actually be by helicopter drones or some other ultralight flying vehicle? And to what extent has Mars already been explored and mapped? Mars has been explored in incredible detail. The spacecraft, uh, all of the spacecraft, especially the, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is the most powerful telescope that's ever been installed around another world, have mapped this planet to incredible detail. And there's some great resources where you can see like the, you can see the Curiosity rover crawling along the, the surface of Mars. You can see where the Beagle 2 impacted. You can see their aeroshells. You can see the, the, the parachutes that are on the surface of Mars. It's been, in, it's been mapped in incredible detail. Um, and there's still, people are still pouring through looking for information on this. So um, would airplanes and other ultralight things work there? Yes, there's been some great ideas of like drones or like gliders and helicopters and things like that that could work on Mars. They need to have a very big uh, wingspan, but the low gravity on Mars makes them potentially work. And you can kind of imagine the future having these Mars rovers with some little drone on top of them, and the drone takes off, maps the area around the rover, returns to the rover, and then the rover you know, and then the scientists on Earth, you know, look at all that map data, pick some targets for the rover, and the rover moves to the next position, and then the drone takes off, explores the area, and comes back. Where that would work even better is Titan. Titan is the best place for us to send some kind of flying, um, you know, explorer. So that's where I'd like to see wings. Garland Garrett. Could the SpaceX BFR or similar boost the International Space Station to the Deep Space Gateway Lagrange point to be used as the first blocks to build the gateway? The problem is that the International Space Station contains an enormous amount of mass. And to move it to some other location, you would need to attach rockets and you would need to push it with a tremendous amount of energy to move it to this location. And then, so that's the one problem, is that it would just take an enormous amount of energy, lots of rockets, not just one BFR, several. That also, it's not built to protect human beings away from low Earth orbit. So it, it doesn't have a lot of shielding because it's got the Earth's magnetosphere around it. The reality is, is that the BFR, uh, sorry, the, the Deep Space Gateway is gonna need to be some custom-built outpost designed for the environment of this, this cislunar orbit. James Smith. Who gets to name Planet Nine when it's found? What do you think it should be called? In general, the International Astronomical Union is the one that provides the names for things like, like planets. So when Planet Nine is discovered, then they will be the ones to name it. That said, the discoverer gets a vote, gets to, gets to pr propose names, and then they may accept them or reject them. And so Mike Brown, for example, the person who discovered Eris, he pitched the name Eris. Originally he was calling it Xena, but he pitched the name Eris, and they liked that name and they went with it. So I think whoever discovers it will have a pretty good chance of being able to suggest a name, and then the IAU may or may not accept it. All right, well, that's it for this week's question show. As always, wherever you are on my channel, if you got a question about space and astronomy or 
characters from Cheers, just type them in and I will answer them here. See you next week.